the, uh, book, the book and this talk is based on my work as a family physician, uh, which I did for 20 years. And seven of those years, I was also medical coordinator of the palliative care unit at Vancouver Hospital, looking after terminally ill people, people dying of cancer, uh, neurological diseases, and uh, so on. And what I found in all those years, learned all those years, what I had not been taught in medical school, is that who gets sick and who doesn't is not accidental. That uh, although we tend to think on cancer and, and uh, multiple sclerosis, which I mentioned last night, or rheumatoid arthritis, or chronic asthma, psoriasis, eczema, colitis, Crohn's disease, any number of chronic illnesses is somehow random events that unfortunately and mysteriously strike a person. And occasionally we think that we can explain the cause by uh, the lifestyle uh, of the individual, like uh, smoking, of course, and its connection to lung cancer. But other than that, other than that, we think that these diseases are either mysterious and unexplainable misfortunes, or they are caused by people's genes. And what I found that quite on the contrary, that who got sick and who didn't wasn't random, and that there were certain identifiable patterns, certain personality traits and behavior, ways of behaving that people unwittingly, without knowing it, unintentionally, but they brought the disease on themselves. And that wasn't their fault. They didn't know what they were doing, as you will see. But since we're talking about caregivers, and let me tell you one little fact that and since the book was published, which is about 10 years ago now, I think, or nine years ago, there's been so much more evidence tending in the same direction. Now, one bit of evidence about caregivers is that there's a structure at the end of our DNA, our chromosomes. Chromosomes is the strands where our DNA is located in our, in the, in our cells, in the nucleus of our cells. And these strands of chromosomes have at the end a structure called a telomere. A telomere is like the glue at the end of my shoelace to keep the strands from fraying, to keep it together. When we're born, our telomeres are a certain length. And as we get older, gradually, gradually, they shorten as we age. And until the, at the end of the, uh, our life, they become unraveled, at which point so do we. Now, they looked at the, t but it's a mark of aging, in other words. Now, they looked at the telomeres of, the, of mothers looking after chronically ill children. And they found that these women in their 30s and their 40s, their telomeres were 10 years shorter than their chronological age would have predicted. In other words, the chronic stress of caregiving aged them by 10 years. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that we shouldn't care for children or for other people that require our support. But it does mean that how we give care and what kind of support we get makes a huge difference to our health. And that's what my topic is about this morning. So I said that there were certain patterns of, of, of being and behavior and psychological relating that are associated with chronic illness. And again, when I say chronic illness, I mean everything, virtually everything. What these patterns were that I saw, I'll identify, uh, or at least I'll illustrate for you by means of newspaper clippings that I'll read for you. As I give this talk, by the way, uh, 
my advice is that you relate it to yourself. They don't just see it as an academic exercise or as a storytelling, but just see to what extent you recognize these patterns in yourself. So the first um, clipping here is by a woman who's, who writes the article herself. These are all from the Globe and Mail. And uh, she's diagnosed with breast cancer. Her name is Donna. So she's diagnosed with breast cancer. And uh, her doctor's name is Harold. His, her husband's name is Hi. And, she, and Donna is the second wife. The first wife died of breast cancer. Now Donna, the second wife, is diagnosed with it. And so Donna writes, Harold tells me that the lump is small and most assuredly not in my lymph nodes. Unlike that of High's first, first wife, whose cancers had spread everywhere by the time they found it. You're not going to die, he reassures me. But I'm worried about High, I say. I won't have the strength to support him. And what do you notice? Her first and automatic thought is, how can I support my husband emotionally as I'm dealing with a potentially fatal illness? So this compulsive and automatic concern for the needs of others while ignoring your own is a major risk factor for chronic illness. The other clippings I will read you are obituaries, all from the Globe and Mail. Obituaries are fascinating because they tell us not only about the person who died, but also about what we as a society value in other people. And often what we value in other people is exactly what kills them in the first place. You heard the expression, the good die young? They do. And there's reasons for it. A lot of you are heaving a sigh of relief. Okay, I don't have to worry about myself then, you're saying so. <laughs> but listen to these obituaries. This one is a doctor who died age 55. And I'm talking here about people who died before their time. This guy dies at age 55 uh, in Toronto of cancer. <clears throat> the obituary says, and this is written as if it was a good thing. Never for a day did he contemplate giving up the work he so loved at Toronto's Sick Children's Hospital. He carried on with his duties toward his year-long battle with cancer, stopping only a few days before he died. Now, think about that one. If you're diagnosed with cancer, or if your friend of yours was diagnosed with cancer, would you say to him and her, hey buddy, here's what you do. Go back to work tomorrow. And all the time that you're getting chemotherapy and radiation and whatever else you're going through, just work every day until you die. So this compulsive and rigid identification with duty, role, and responsibility rather than the needs of the self is a major risk factor for illness. The next obituary is um, by, uh, written by a husband about his wife, Naomi, who died at age 55, also of cancer. And he writes, in her entire life, she never got into a fight with anyone. The word she could say was fooey or something else along those lines. She had no ego. She just blended in with the environment in an unassuming manner. Now, the suppression of in other words, she never got angry with anybody. The suppression, the repression of healthy anger is a major risk factor for illness. It actually suppresses the immune system for reasons I will tell you later. So there's 
basically um, three ways of dealing with anger. One is to repress it, like this woman did. So these are the people that are always nice. You know, they're always nice. I worry about really nice people. The other way is to give in to it and to act it out, to, to go into rages. That's also unhealthy. The first, the repression of anger leads to autoimmune disease and cancer. The, when you're raging all the time, that increases your risk of heart disease and strokes. So in the aftermath, the studies have shown that in the aftermath of a rage episode, your risk of a heart attack doubles for the next two hours. Then there's the healthy expression of anger, or the healthy processing of anger, which most of us don't know how to do. We either do the one or we do the other. I'll talk to you about healthy anger later. But how do we deal with anger uh, is, is, has a crucial effect on our health. And uh, this guy writes, you know, she had no ego. She just blended in with the environment in an unassuming manner. And this is supposed to be a good thing. Now, my wife's name is Ray, and she's an artist. And it's one of her paintings that provided the a detail here on, on the cover and the color scheme for the cover for this book. And sometimes I say to Ray, you know, we've been married 42 years. I go, well, why can't you blend in with the environment in, a, <laughs> in an unassuming, ma in an unassuming manner? <laughs> but Ray has done her psychological work, and she's read my book, and she, she's also seen the studies. You know, there was a study just four or five years ago presented at a major medical conference that looked at 1,700 women over a 10-year period. And over a 10-year period, out of these women, those who, who were unhappily married and suppressed their feelings were four times as likely to die as those who were also unhappily married but expressed their feelings. So the issue wasn't happy marriage or unhappy marriage. The issue was, did the woman express herself or did she not? So when I come to this point at my talk, this permits me to reassure the men in the audience that the next time you think your wife is a bitch, you should be glad about it. <laughs> now, um, I'll read you one more of these. Uh, I'll read you a couple more of these obituaries. This is a mother in Calgary who died in her early 50s, again, cancer. Just look at this. A master at multitasking, she juggled several hockey practices, school board, orchestra, and other extracurricular activities. June 2005 brought terrible news to this mother of three by now president of the Parents Council at Western Canada College. Emergency surgery revealed metastatic cancer. She refused the cloak of illness. She did not give up on any of her roles. You know, she had all these roles, and they were more important than who she was. She even continued her 5 a.m. bicycle trips around the nearby reservoir. Now imagine that when you're getting chemotherapy. She enrolled in a life coaching course, and upon graduation from the Adler School, she initiated Living Out Loud, a group for women with cancer. That's very typical of people who get chronic disease. And finally, um, 
an, another physician who dies of cancer. And again, how the obituary writes something that's clearly, when we look at it, is self-destructive, but the person didn't realize it, and neither does the individual who writes the obituary. Sidney and his mother had an incredibly special relationship, a bond that was apparent in all aspects of their lives until her death. As a married man with young children, Sidney made a point to have dinner with his parents every day as his wife Roslyn and their four kids waited for him at home. Sidney would walk in, greeted by yet another dinner to eat and to enjoy. Never wanting to disappoint either woman in his life, Sidney kept eating two dinners a day for years until gradual weight gain began to raise suspicions. Okay? So that this poor man suffered under the belief that, number one, um, he was responsible for how everybody else felt, and number two, he must never disappoint anybody. So he actually couldn't say to his mother, you know, Mom, I got amazing news. I got four kids. And, some, and, and, and I'm going to have dinner with them most of the time. Nor could he say to his wife, you know, Rosalind, I'm very close with my mom. She needs my support. So once or twice a week, I'm going to have dinner with her. He just tried to please everybody all the time. And this need to please everybody all the time, it'll kill you. And as I'll, for reasons I will tell you. And these reasons are not psychological. They're physiological. They have to do with the body, the immune system, and, and everything else. You can't separate the mind from the body. And the problem with my profession, the medical profession, is that we make two separations that are actually, in life, impossible to make. One is that we separate the mind from the body. We think that people's emotional lives are somehow separate from their physiology. Completely false assumption, unscientific, refuted by all the research, and yet if you go to a doctor, I mean, I know some of you here um, have had autoimmune illnesses, for example. So ask yourself, when you've been to the physician, with your uh, rheumatoid arthritis, your joint being inflamed, or some other rheumatic condition. Did anybody ever ask you about your childhood? Anybody ever ask you about your stresses in your life? Anybody ever ask you about your marriage? About how you, uh, how you relate to your work? About how you look after yourself or how you don't? Likely not. Likely what they did is they said, you got this illness, we don't know why you got it. And here are the pills. So they'll give you a medication to suppress the inflammation, or they'll give you a medication because autoimmune disease, the immune system attacks the body itself, so we give you a medication to suppress the immune system itself, or we'll give you uh, cortisol or, or some kind of other steroid. Well, that's all we do. We don't talk about the life factors that may have contributed to the onset of the illness. And I can guarantee you, I can guarantee you, that any of you here who've had chronic illness of any kind, you're going to recognize yourself in this talk completely and 100%. And you're going to wonder, why didn't anybody say this to me before? Because in the West, when I say the West, I mean the dominant Western culture, unlike Aboriginal cultures, unlike the, the traditional medicines of China or India or native traditions around the world, we separate the mind from the body. So we treat only the body. 
unless you have mental illness, in which case we still separate the mind from the body. We se and, and, and the other thing we separate is the individual from the environment. As I said to you last night, those of you that were there, you can't separate people from their environment. People are shaped by the environment. And in lifelong, in interaction with the environment, is how human beings live. Now let me give you three examples of that. Why you can't separate people from the environment. It's been shown now, for example, that children whose parents are stressed are much more likely to have asthma. No. Not controversial. Several studies have shown that. So in polluted areas where there is more asthma, it's the kids of parents who are stressed who are most likely to have the asthma. Now, most doctors have never heard about that. And if they did, they can't explain it. And yet it's so obvious, you see. Those of you that have asthma, anybody had asthma here before in your life? Okay. You were given two kinds of inhalers if you had asthma. One inhaler is probably called Ventolin. And its job is to open up the airways. Because what happens in asthma is you get a spasm of the muscles that surround the airways. So you get this narrowing of the tube through which air has to pass into the lungs. So you're wheezing and whistling and laboring your breathing. And the other inhaler you got would have been a steroid to suppress the inflammation, the swelling, and the um, inflammatory debris that clutters up the airway. So you get two inhalers. One is called a bronchodilator to, open, to dilate, open up the airway. The other is to suppress the inflammation. Now, what are these uh, inhalers based on? The, the inhaler that opens up the airway is a copy of adrenaline. And the um, inhaler that opens up, that, that suppresses the inflammation, is a copy of cortisol. A service. What are adrenaline and cortisol? They're stress hormones. Exactly. In other words, we're giving asthmatics stress hormones, the same stress hormones that are made by their own adrenal glands when they're stressed. All that's happened is, is that their own stress response mechanisms have been exhausted, and now we have to give them stress hormones from the outside. Now guess what? If you're rheumatoid arthritis or lupus, what will they give you? Cortisol, the stress hormone. Shouldn't we be asking ourselves that if we're treating people with stress hormones, whether or not there might be a connection between stress and their disease? Now, of course, why the children of uh, parents who are uh, stressed? Because the parents' stresses actually program the physiology of the child. <clears throat> because you can't separate the individual from the environment. And this is true all our lives. A study of women in Australia, 500 women, 550 women who had lumps in their breasts that were of sufficient concern as to require a biopsy. Now, they had these biopsies, but before the results came back, they also had a psychological interview or a questionnaire. It turns out after the results came back that if a woman had had a significant stressful incident in her life just prior to the onset of that lump, that by itself had zero effect on whether or not that lump was cancerous. Similarly, if a woman was emotionally isolated, that also had zero effect. But if a woman was emotionally isolated and had a major stressor, the risk of that lump being cancerous was nine times as great as the average. Now, the medical doctors running the study couldn't understand this one either. Because they said, how does zero and zero add up to nine? 
you see? Because we don't understand the connection between individuals and the environment. Now here's the deal, if I were to uh, uh, act inappropriately towards you right now, if I were to stress you right now, physically or, or, or emotionally, you'd have three healthy options. But, well, no, let's see, I won't go into that right now. Uh, if I were to stress you right now, what would happen is that that stress wouldn't just be in your head, it would be in your whole body. You know, your heart rate would go up, your nervous system would be firing off all kinds of impulses, your adrenal glands would be pouring adrenaline and cortisol so that you could escape or fight back. These are the flight or fight hormones. And so your body would be in a different state physiologically in a split second in order to help you fight to escape. That's good. So in the short term, the stress hormones help you fight or to escape. But what do they do in the long term? In the long term, the stress hormones deplete your body, suppress your immune system, give you heart disease, high blood pressure, give you ulcers, thin your bones. Okay? Now, what would happen if, if you were stressed, <clears throat> something happened that was stressful to you, and you're sitting there all upset about it, and your body's in a state of uh, imbalance and, and, and upset, but somebody that you trust came along and said, hey friend, I see that you're not feeling well, I see that you're upset, puts a hand on your shoulder and says, hey, do you want to talk about it? Now, what would happen to your body right away? Yes, it would relax. You take a deep breath. Your brain would get oxygen. You start thinking more clearly. Your heart rate would slow down. Your blood pressure diminish. The stress hormones abate in your system. And you go back into a healthy balance. All because somebody said, hey, buddy, do you want to talk about it? Those women that had been stressed but were emotionally alone, the stress hormone acted on their system for months. That's why they were more likely to get cancer. It's really straightforward. In other words, again, the physiology of one individual can't be separated from the psychological and social environment. And finally, at the end of life, a study in a major medical journal a few years ago showed that amongst elderly couples, when one of them is hospitalized, what do you suppose happens to the other one? They get sick. In other words, the, the risk of illness goes up in the other one when the one is hospitalized. Why? Because their immune systems are not isolated from our psychological, emotional, social relationships. We can't separate the mind from the body, and you can't separate the individual from the environment. So how this works, I'll tell you in a few minutes, but I'll just illustrate it with a, a disease I'm quite interested in because Again, medical science says we don't know the cause of it. And I think that it's only because we're not looking. And I'm talking about a rare condition called ALS, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, which is a degenerative condition of the nervous system that leaves you very rapidly completely paralyzed. Your mind is intact, but your body's paralyzed. And in the end, you can't breathe, and you die of respiratory failure. And, uh, Right now, there's a court case with somebody with ALS who wants the right to, to medical suicide. And you remember Sue Rodriguez in Victoria who went through the same thing and her case was rejected in the Supreme Court. So it's, it's a very um, 
dire disease and it carries a terrible prognosis and most people who get it are dead within a few years. And it strikes otherwise healthy people. So a woman came to me for a second opinion about mm, 12 years ago now, actually referred to me by my friend Gordon Neufeld, psychologist. And her story was that she'd been diagnosed with ALS by one of the leading experts in the condition in British Columbia, or in the world, actually. And, but she didn't want to accept the diagnosis. She wanted me to tell her that it was only stress. Well, it was ALS, but it was also stress. Her story was that she was a teacher and a vice principal at an elementary school in uh, Lower Mainland of BC, in Richmond. And she found at a certain point that she could no longer hold the pen in her hands because her fingers just wouldn't obey her brain's commands. She also began to experience difficulty walking. Now you would think if that occurred to you, you would very urgently seek a medical opinion, not her. What she did is she'd get up for months. She would get up at 5.30 every morning, slowly get herself dressed, of course, because her fingers would have trouble buttoning or pulling zippers. She'd drive herself to school, <clears throat> walk into school at 7.30 with her troubled gait. She would clutch the chalk in her clenched fist and painstakingly scrawl the day's lesson on the board for the students, teach the whole day, go home, stay up late at night to prepare the next day's lesson. Everything was slow for her, you see. And next morning, get up at 5.30. And she did that until she could no longer walk. Now, or barely. Now, is she alone in this? Not at all. Everybody I've ever looked at with ALS has got exactly the same personality and the same behavior pattern, without exception. Without any exception. Doesn't matter who I interviewed or read about. In writing this book, I also looked at the medical literature. And in 1970, there was a study at Yale University Medical School about ALS patients by two psychiatrists who wrote the following. These patients, they invariably evoked admiration and respect from all staff who came into contact with them. Characteristic was their attempt to avoid asking for help. Hard steady work without recourse to help from others was pervasive. There seemed to have been habitual denial, suppression, or isolation of fear, anxiety, and sadness. So no expression of negative emotions, so-called. Some spoke gradually of their deterioration, or sorry, casually, like it didn't matter, uh, or did so with engaging smiles. Now then I looked up the biography of Lou Gehrig, after whom the disease is named in North America. Now those of you who are old enough might know that Lou Gehrig was a great baseball player, uh, played for the New York Yankees and in the 1930s. And he set a record for a number of hits by a New York Yankee that was only broken two years ago by Derek Jeter. So that record stood for 80 years. Now Gehrig set another record that was stood for nearly 60 years, and that was consecutive games played. So he never missed a game. Now, did he never miss a game? And he was called the Iron Horse. I didn't know about this before I read his biography. I just knew he died of his ALS. Let's look at what happened to him. Well, same thing. He was known as the Iron Horse because he never missed a game, and he didn't never miss a game because he was never sick. He was a human being. 
He had flus and colds like everybody else. Furthermore, being an athlete, he was injured. At one point, his hands were x-rayed, and it turned out that his fingers had been fractured 17 separate times. And each time, he would play through the injury. And his teammates would describe him as grimacing like a maddened monkey in agony as he fielded the ball, but he never missed the game. And yet, when a teammate of his, a young rookie, gets sick with a flu illness and he can't play, and the manager's really upset with the guy, Gary says, what on earth are you talking about? He's sick, he can't play. Takes the rookie home to his own house where he lived with his mother. His mother puts this rookie into Gary's own bed. Lou sleeps in the living room couch as his mother nurses his kid back to health. And he himself never missed a game until he could no longer walk. Now, this is typical with everybody with ALS. Now, are we blaming patients for causing their own illness? Well, no, we're not, because it's not deliberate. It's not deliberate. These are unconscious patterns. <clears throat> Let me give you a, <clears throat> an example from my personal life. So um, when I was 54 and my mother 78, she was in a nursing home because she had uh, a genetic illness called uh, muscular dystrophy and she could no longer walk, move her arms much. Mentally, of course, she was completely with it. She died at age 82. And by this time, she was a widow and she had to be in a nursing home. Now, one afternoon, I'm visiting her in a nursing home. And as I'm walking down the hall of the nursing home, I have a bit of a limp, just a slight limp. The reason I had a limp is because I had arthroscopic surgery that morning on one of my knees, a surgery which was minimally invasive, and they just cut out a piece of a torn cartilage, which I incurred because I used to jog on cement, and I didn't pay attention to the fact that it hurt jogging on cement. I missed a lecture in medical school about the relationship between pain and tissue damage, so that uh, I didn't know this was a bad thing. So I continued to jog on cement, tore cartilage, surgery that morning, that afternoon, a bit of a limp. When I get to my mother's room, I open the door, and my limp disappears. And I walk into her room with a perfectly normal gait, greet her, we visit. I walk out again in a balanced way, and then I close the door behind me, and I start limping again. Now, what do you suppose I was doing? Anyone? Taking care of her, not, not wanting her to worry, yeah. But here's the thing about my mother. She was 78. She had survived the Second World War. She had survived the Nazi genocide, the death of her parents in Auschwitz. She, just, she, she survived communist dictatorship, the Hungarian Revolution in 1956, emigration to Canada with two adolescent boys and, her, and, and, and my father, uh, the birth of a child in Canada when she was 39 in a new country, uh, the whole immigration experience, do you think she could have handled the, f and she was a mentally and emotionally very strong person, do you think she could have handled the fact that her middle-aged son had a bit of a limp the afternoon of the arthroscopic surgery? <laughs> had I thought about it, I would not have suppressed my limp, but the point is I didn't think about it. It went back to my very first year of life. When uh, I was two months old, when uh, the German army marched into Budapest, 
And my mother phones the pediatrician to say, would you please come and see Gabor, because he's crying all the time, the day after the invasion. And, my, and the pediatrician says, of course I will come, but I should tell you, all my Jewish babies are crying. Now, what do you think that was about? What did I, as a two-month-old, two know about Nazis or Hitler or genocide? What was I reacting to? Stress. The stress of my mother. Infants pick up on the stress of their mothers. And the infant learns very quickly that if the mother is so stressed already, that if I add more stress to it, that might threaten my relationship with her. Because she'll be even more unhappy. Then the infant will learn to suppress their own pain, simply to maintain their relationship. Now, that's not a mother's uh, desire ever to give that message to an infant, but we do automatically and unconsciously. That's just how it works. And that becomes the memory, and I'll talk to you more about those memories later, but it becomes a memory without recall. I don't recall that time in my life, but the memory is in my body. And my friend Servas, who works with bodies a lot, he, he sees the body memories in the way people stand or they hold themselves or the way they walk. And we hold these memories in our bodies and we're not even aware of them up here because there's no conscious recollection. So that suppression of my limb was a body memory of what I had to do to maintain my relationship with my mother. Now the woman with ALS, the teacher, she was an adopted child. And um, shortly after the adoption, guess what? Her mother gets pregnant. And the biological child was the mother's center of attention. And the adopted child, from her early age on, learned, or at least perceived, that she wasn't loved and accepted and celebrated like the biological child was. And hence, she worked to make herself lovable. And how do you work to make yourself lovable? By suppressing your own feelings, by always being nice, by always taking care, and always ignoring your own needs. And it was purely unconscious. This is, her this is her coping patterns since she was a small child. She did not do it deliberately. And Lou Gehrig's father was an alcoholic. And if any of you grew up in homes where there's alcoholism, you know how it works. Is that the children, or one of the children, becomes the caregiver to the parents. Emotionally, or even physically sometimes. And that then becomes your personality. That then becomes how you live your life. Because you think that's who you are. Because how we are as kids, we think that's who we are. That's not who we are, but that's what we come to believe, and that's, who we, that's how we behave then. And that's what creates these patterns. So there's nobody here to be blamed here. Nobody here to be blamed. It's just how it works. Now, why, does these, why do these patterns translate into illness? That's because, as traditional medicine has always understood, and as Western science has now confirmed, <coughs> mind and body are inseparable. So if you look at the important systems in the body and the brain, they're completely connected. So that the emotional centers in the brain are connected to the immune system and the hormonal apparatus and the uh, nervous system. <clears throat> Infants, anybody, any human being, we have two basic needs. And the more immature we are, the more important the first need becomes, and that's for attachment. And attachment means that connection with another human being for the purpose of being taken care of. 
That's an absolute need of the small child. Can't live without it. Impossible. So that's one large need. Another need, however, we have to function as full human beings is to be authentic. Authentic means that we know who we are, what we feel, are able to express it and able to honor it in our behavior. So we have the need for attachment and we have the need for authenticity. So far, so good. But what happens if in order to attach, we have to suppress our authenticity? Because our parents can't handle who we are. Because they can't handle our anger as two-year-olds. Because they can't handle our, our expression of our needs. Because they're too stressed. They're too needy. Like my mother was in that terrible situation. Then we suppress who we are. We suppress our authenticity and we suppress our awareness of our gut feelings because the, the expression of them would bring us into conflict with our caregivers and threaten our attachments. And so our problem as adults is that we a lot of our behaviors are still coming out of our need to attach. So we're still behaving like little kids who need to attach and need to be liked and need to be accepted and approved of at the expense of our authenticity. And that, people, is what makes us sick. Now, a fourth connection I didn't even know about, but has been um, described since I wrote my book, is the heart-brain connection. It turns out that the heart itself has a nervous system in the pericardium, which is the fibrous membrane that surrounds the heart. There's a network of nerves which have predictive capacities. So when people say, especially for negative things, so when you say, oh, I knew it in my heart, you did. And that brain in the heart is connected to the brain up here. So that's yet another kind of connection. So then naturally, whatever happens emotionally uh, and how we live our lives has a huge impact on our physiology because these systems are not separate. They're just one system. So let's look at the question of how the repression of anger then might um, <clears throat> suppress our immune system, okay? So, um, I'll ask for a volunteer here, and whoever volunteers, uh, I, I can promise you two things. One is that you might feel uncomfortable for a minute, and the other is that you learn something about yourself, okay? So, any volunteers? You know, thanks, right there. No, you don't have to do it. just stay where you are. Here, what's your name? Lorraine. Lorraine? Well, thanks for volunteering. Here are the rules, okay? This is a metaphor or a representation of your life. You sitting in that chair. Therefore, you can't leave the chair, okay? So whatever happens, you're going to have to stay exactly where you are. Other than that, you can do whatever you need to. You got it? Okay. So, Lorraine, what I'm going to ask you is, if you're okay with me standing right here as I give the lecture? Is this comfortable for you? Okay. So I'm going to come closer now and ask you if it's still okay. If I give the lecture here, is that still okay with you? Yes. It's fine. No. What about if I stood right here and gave the rest of the lecture right here? How would that be for you? It's uncomfortable. So what would you like to do about it? For you to step back. You'd like me to step back and, okay, how are you going to get that? Asking you. You can ask me, okay. You can ask and I'm going to say heck with you and come a bit closer, okay? No. Push you no, away. No, you, no, okay. okay, now you'd push me away. Now you'd push me away, right? You'd push me away. Yes. Okay, very good. As you were pushing, what emotion do you think you'd be generating? That's, that's why you pushed me away. But as you were pushing, 
what do you think you'd be feeling? I felt. Not what you felt, but what you would feel if you were actually pushing me. What's the emotion do you think that'd be there for you? Exactly. Anger. And that's a healthy anger. Now, healthy anger is nothing but a defense of your boundaries. And basically, Lorraine, what you'd be, pushing, what you'd be saying to me is, you're in my space, get out. You're in my space, get out. Now, if you said that in the first place, you would need to be pushing me. Right? But the pushing itself, it's, it's good. It's, it's a good response. It's a healthy response. So, in other words, healthy anger is an expression of a boundary defense. So the job of our emotions... Now, by the way, if I was somebody else in your life, I mean somebody that, you know, we had a different relationship with, you might welcome them coming close to you, right? No, no, no I, don't, I don't mean me. I mean your child or your partner or whoever, or your, you know, somebody. You might actually embrace them, right, in a different situation. So the, so the role of emotions basically is to... Uh, respond to, approach, and welcome the healthy and positive approach, and to keep out the unhealthy and aggressive one. So it's either I want more of this or I want less of this. So that's the job of healthy anger. That's the job of the emotions. In other words, it's to let in what's healthy and nourishing and to keep out what's dangerous and unwelcome. That's the job of emotions, basically. Now, what is the job of the immune system? Yeah, so basically, the job of the immune system is to keep out what's unhealthy, like bacteria, or to kill cancer cells. That's what it does. Or to let in what's healthy, like vitamins and nourishments and so on. If your immune system attacked the particles of food and destroyed them before you had a chance to absorb them, you wouldn't live. So that the job of the immune system, immune system is like that. It's been called the floating brain because it has recognition capacity, reactive capacity, and learning capacity. So it's the same as the emotions. The immune, the immune system does the same thing as the emotions. Protect us and let in what we need. Given the unity of all these systems, it's obvious that when you suppress the one, you're suppressing the other. And that's why people that suppress anger, they have diminished activity of their immune system, as has been shown in studies. Or what happens is that the immune system gets so confused because our emotions are confused that it turns against ourselves. And that's when you get autoimmune disease, when the immune system actually attacks the body itself. Fundamentally, what happens is one way or the other. If you don't know how to say no when you need to, your body will say it for you in the form of illness. So chronic illness represents the body saying no when you didn't do it. Not your fault. This is how you were programmed before you had any choice in the matter. So again, it's not a question of blame or self-blame. But it does mean that to prevent illness, or if you have an illness, to deal with it more effectively, you need to learn to assert who you are and to say no. Now that might be difficult sometimes because the people in your life 
have got used to you as a yes. They've always heard you say yes. Some of them might not like you very much if you start saying no all of a sudden. And what you're going to do when you start saying no is you're going to find out who your friends are. Because the real ones are going to say to you, hey, I'm so glad you're finally saying no. And the ones that were simply there because you were constantly available for them are going to, oh, what happened to her or him? That's it. But so it, it, it'll create some conflict which, which will <laughs> trigger all your fears about attachment. So you're going to have to learn that, you're, that you are more important than your attachments. That wasn't true when you were a kid, but it's true as an adult. I'm going to finish with one story, and then we'll take questions and do a couple of little exercises for you. Gilda Radner, you might remember her as a comedian on Saturday Night Live. And she died of ovarian cancer. And um, I didn't know anything about her life, but I read her biography because I knew she died of cancer. And guess what? It's the same story over again. So Gilda Radner um, uh, was a very unhappy child, and she was overweight as a child. And uh, she um, was thin as an adult because she was, she was bulimic. So all the time that she was a star, she was actually a bulimic. Typically, she didn't tell her mother. Her mother didn't know that she was bulimic until after she had died. Why? Because she was still protecting her mother just like I was with suppressing my limp. Her father died when she was 12, a loss she never overcame. Question here, I mean, I, some of you may not, you know, some of you may wish to answer. If you don't, that's perfectly okay. But is anybody here willing to acknowledge, and you don't have to, there's no pressure here, that you were sexually abused as a child? If that's true for you, just put your hand up. Okay, very good, thank you. At the very back, how old were you when that happened? Four. Four, and for how long? About a year. About a year. And in that year, who did you tell about it? Nobody. Nobody. Thank you. How old were you when it happened? Eleven. Eleven. And for how long did it go on? Um, not very long. Uh, a few weeks? Uh, a few days, even. A few days, okay. In those few days, who did you tell about it? Nobody. Nobody, okay. That's what the stress is. Because stress is not just what happens to us, it's how we process it. What you should have had to have been able to do was to scream and yell as soon as anybody touched you the wrong way. That's what you should have been able to do too, is just to scream and run and ask for help. The fact that you didn't is not your fault. By the time you were four and by the time you were 11, you had already learned that you were alone in the world and that there's nobody there to listen to you. So it's not that... You made a mistake, you just simply did what any child would, which is to assess the situation unconsciously, and you already knew that nobody there was there to support you. And there, when, when there's no support there, then you can't express how you feel. It's that suppression of feeling and the non-expression of the stress response that actually creates the long-term chronic stress. So even if it's somebody with chronic accidents, 
first of all, there's reasons why they had them in the first place. And in the second place, they may not have had the environment where they could actually talk about their feelings and be really listened to and understood. And that's what creates the long-term stress. So it's the suppression that's the issue here. This is how I would respond, without knowing anything about the particular case, but this would be a general answer to your question. Yes? Okay, now you have to really yell or come to the mic. I have two things, more of an observation. Um, do you have any suggestions when we work with individuals and uh, we know that they have the tools to, because they use words like self-education or they know what is wrong with them. Yeah. Um, so, but they say, why bother? Yeah. You know, um, what, what, are there any suggestions on how we can work with them? And, yeah. Yeah. Well, first of all, let me ask you a question, all of you. How many of you, just again, ask for a show of hands, how many of you made New Year's resolutions this year? How many of you made New Year's resolutions? Can I see the hands? How many of you have still kept them? Okay. How many of you know what it takes to live, have a really good life, I mean, in terms of nutrition and exercise and emotional balance and all that. How many of you know what it takes? How many of you are living it? Okay, so first of all, thank you. First of all, the person you're talking about is not that unique, are they? They're just like the rest of us. So what I would say to that person is, you know what? Uh, listen to them. What are they saying to you? They're saying that they're discouraged. So just hear their, instead of talking them out of it, listen to them. Ah, oh, you sound really discouraged. Wonder what that's about for you. You must feel really hopeless sometimes. You know, even me, I know how to live a good life, but I don't do it. It's just very hard. Really listen to them. Make sure that they feel validated and understood by you. Then they can get past it. If you try to talk them out of it, you can't. And again, a bit louder, please. The second point is I, 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 I'm on an immune suppressive drug yeah. right now. And I kind of think, maybe it's time to change my field. But I mean, I used to be a yes person. Yeah. But I'm wondering, you know, when I had trauma about five years ago, some major trauma that happened in our family, um, is that, and then this past year is when I started getting this immune suppressive issue and um, ulcers on my leg. And is that, is there, is there a timeline when this finally starts to really affect your body or, you know, like, so I always talk to my staff about self-care, how important it is, and I've been doing that myself, learning to say, you know, no, I have to, you know, create these boundaries, because I was almost wanting to help people make them, and that made me feel better, but then I realized that I wasn't taking care of me. Right. But is there any suggestions on really on how to take back some of that well, let me tell you about a friend of mine who uh, lives in Calgary. <clears throat> Her name is Shannon Duke. And Shannon is 48 years old now. And uh, when she was 37, she was diagnosed with stage 4 breast cancer. Now, stage 4 meant that the cancer was already in her bones by the time it was diagnosed. At that time, she had two young children, age one and three, and married to a well-to-do businessman. She herself was a very high-functioning executive for Microsoft in Calgary. And then she's diagnosed. She had the perfect life, perfect marriage, perfect home, of course, 
and then she's diagnosed. And healthy, physically, you know, fit, always ate well. And then she's diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. And she has a transformation. Now, she gets the best medical advice she can get anywhere in North America, and she traveled to New York and elsewhere. And she got the best medical treatment, and with that, she was given one year to live, because that's the prognosis. Stage four, despite the medical treatment, chances are you'll be dead in one year. Now, a year ago in February, just a year ago now, Shannon traveled to the Napa Valley of California with some of her friends, and they celebrated her 10th year survival and her 47th birthday. And the transformation that she experienced was that when she was diagnosed and started paying attention, she realized that her life had not been her life, because she was sexually abused as a child. And uh, her response to the abuse was, of course, as many children will experience, it can't be about the adults, it's about me. So if, I w if this terrible thing happened to me, I must be a very bad person. So I have to be very good to compensate. So the good daughter who doesn't talk about it, doesn't disturb the waters, the good employee, the good student, the good wife who doesn't talk about the husband's addiction issues because that would again disturb the waters. And when she's diagnosed and she decides she wants to live, she says, the hell with all this perfection and goodness. And she confronts her family of origin about the abuse that she had endured and she confronts her husband. And she starts leaving an authentic, and she leaves the job, by the way, which wasn't her. Wasn't really expressing who she was. Now, 11 years later, the cancer is still in her bones, but it's completely inactive. But she knows that if she wants to stay alive, she needs to stay authentic. So that, I believe that many of these issues are reversible. <clears throat> I'm not promising a cure here to anybody, but Shannon really underwent uh, a major self-journey. And she continues every day to work at it. And she, she practices her spiritual uh, ways, which she ignored all those years. And she pays attention to herself. And she keeps clearing this stuff out. And she is the picture of health. Her and I give workshops together sometime. So that there's ways to get there, but it's a commitment. And of course, it might threaten the attachment relationships. So that's always your call. I was um, curious about um, any correlation with the uh, endocrine system, uh, with uh, a person that is either living with alcohol-related birth defects and, um, and trauma. So, so when we look at what you're pre presenting here about um, the mind and body connection and um, the immune system, so, so you're speaking about a lot of, uh, about the hormones. So my question is about um, if the endocrine system is not developed fully uh, because of alcohol-related birth defects. I, d I don't know the answer. I don't, I don't know the effect of, I'm not expert enough to tell you if there's any correlation between alcohol effects and the hormonal apparatus, the endocrine system. I do know that there's a correlation between trauma and endocrine system. That's what I mean talking about, but I don't know the specific answer about alcohol. It's a good question. I may need to look it up. Uh, are you telling me it's finished, or do you have a question? We've got five minutes, okay. Well, look, uh, rather than take another question at the moment, let me just ask you to take a couple of minutes and answer the following question for yourself. 
in what area of your life are you not saying no? I'm talking about where there's a no that wants to be said, but you're not saying it. Those areas are usually work or personal relationships, okay? And I suggest you just talk to each other. Just tell each other at your table uh, or a partner. If you don't want to talk, write it. But have a conversation with yourself or somebody else at your table about where you're not saying no in your life. Uh, that would be a personal relationship or uh, on your job, okay? Just